can't express to you how glad I am to be here and how glad I am to be worshiping with you again, um, even invited to preach. Who knew? Uh, uh, the presumption that I can preach, that's very nice, Jeff. Thank you. <laughs> I'll take it. And I do want to uh, give to all of you a word of thanks uh, for all of the support for the cards and the letters and all of that that I received this past year uh, through the time that I was doing radiation. Um, all of my tests currently are very positive, uh, very encouraged, and, uh, but the support and prayers and warmth of this community were gave me uh, more meaning than, than you will ever know. Uh, so thank you very much. So let us proceed now to the reading from Christian scripture in the Gospel of Matthew. I love Jenna's expansion of the tradition with the phrase wise ones. And so we, if you're looking in your bulletin, it will be the visit of the wise ones. So listen now for these words from the Gospel of Matthew. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise ones from the east came to Jerusalem asking, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for these wise ones and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. And then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. And then opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. This ends our reading. So, Epiphany. 
manifestation, the season of light. This story that we just read from the Gospel of Matthew is a familiar story to me. I'm sure it probably is a familiar story to most of you, if not from Scripture, if from the many ways in which this story has been surrounded by years and years within the tradition of, of legend and interpretation. For example, of course, many, many churches across this country do Christmas pageants during the, Christmas, or during the Advent season. I even heard a rumor about one particular Christmas pageant in which a unicorn, <laughs> sounds like you've heard this rumor too, in which a unicorn appeared at the manger. And I have to say, that's a wonderful talking about expansion of the tradition, that that's a wonderful expansion. It really does begin to convey the meaning that all are welcome manger side. And consequently, all are welcome into churches. So, there are many ways in which we have expanded or added to this story. There's Henry Van Dyke's story about the other wise man. I mean, maybe you've read that. It's worth reading. But we also must acknowledge this. We also it must acknowledge that much of what we accept as biblical fact is simply not there. For example, we assume that there were three of them that came on that visitation. In actuality, the text does not specify any number. It specifies three types of gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and notice it added on to the, what they inherited from the, from the Hebrew scripture, myrrh. It specifies three types of gifts, but not the number of visitors. It could have been two, it could have been five, it could have been ten, we, we just don't know. And wherever did we get the idea that these were kings. The Latin word is magi. Could be best translation of that as astrologer. The Greek word is magos, not maggot, magos, and refers to a member of the priestly learned class of ancient Persia. I personally can remember many pageants in which I participated as a child where I was dressed up as a king to represent the three wise men. And so now when I hear the beginning of this story, I'll have to confess, in, in the time of King Herod, when Jesus was born in, in Bethlehem, they came from the east, I get this immediate image of three men riding camels, dressed as kings in multicolored bathtubs bathrobes, sandals and lopsided crowns on their heads. And that's what I remember. So 
Oh, by the way, in the gospel text, there's no mention of camels. Now, I know there's mention of camels in the Hebrew scripture, but there's no mention of camels in the gospel text. It really could have been any way in which they got there, but so be it. But when Jeff asked me to preach on this particular Sunday, and of course, in a very Jeff Gaines sort of way, he reminded me it was epiphany. <laughs> Translation meaning, do not dig through your files for some old sermon <laughs> that's on some different text. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, but I, I started thinking about the meaning of this text and the meaning of epiphany and what it might possibly mean for us today in 2019. And two words began to emerge from the text for me. The word wise, or we could say wisdom, and the word frightened, or we could say fear. Wisdom and fear. Now the Greek word for wisdom is Sophia, and wisdom in the biblical text is always personified as feminine. I don't know exactly what wisdom meant to those magi, to those visitors from the east, but presumably they were wise enough to see through King Herod and his intentions and they were wise enough to pay attention and listen to their dreams. And perhaps hard-won wisdom also dictated to them the manner in which they approached the manger and this child, these parents. They presumably did not enter. They, it records that they said very little presumably did not enter spouting off all kinds of what they imagined to be very, very wise sayings, proverbs, giving all kinds of parental advice. Anyone who's been a first-time parent? Yes, you get a lot of advice. But they didn't presume to do that. They seemed to possess a kind of wisdom. For some reason, these strangers from afar were moved to enter into that stable and to kneel in an act of humility and pay homage, saying very little. It's almost as if they possessed a wisdom of not knowing, not presuming to know, know everything, not presuming to tell them how to live, as if they were some, from some kind of superior culture. I wonder what that means for us today. And for those among us who presume to rule or legislate. And the reaction of those in power, the reaction of Herod, was fear. Not obvious fear, but frightened nonetheless. King Herod was frightened, it records, and all Jerusalem with him. 
And isn't that just the way that power reacts to perceived threats? And we know the extent of that reaction as we read on in the Gospel of Matthew, the subsequent massacre of the infants in, in Jerusalem in Bethlehem. Power reacts with fear and then oh so often violence. And it also plays on the fears of others in order to keep power at all costs. So again, how do we see that playing out in our own context? And finally, I want to note what I guess is the obvious, but these were outsiders. These visitors were outside the tradition they were outsiders to Mary and Joseph. They were outsiders to the people of Bethlehem. They were not, as I said, within their tradition. They most likely had a strange language and strange dress, strange customs. But like so many outsiders, aliens, if you will, dare we say migrants or immigrants, they saw things that the insiders most often don't or can't see, important things. And they came and knelt and paid homage, somehow because of what they discerned on the way about this birth. And in that seeing, and in their gestures, they began to teach the insiders, if those insiders were open to listening. I would say to you, they brought wisdom and light. So if we delve deep into this story, there's much for us to learn, is there not? And it did remind me of two things, uh, two stories. One of them is an incident out of my own experience back in the 1990s when I was in the Pres Presbytery in uh, South Carolina. That particular Presbytery established a partnership with the Presbyterian Church of Sudan. Now the 1990s were a time in Sudan when the civil war was raging, a bloody civil war between northerners and southerners in that country. And so a partnership with the church in Sudan was an adventure, to say the least. But it so happened in 1993 that the chair of the mission committee in that presbytery called me up and asked me if I would consider going to the southern part of Sudan as a representative of our presbytery to visit some of the leaders and people of the Presbyterian Church of Sudan. I remember being really surprised and really shocked and finally saying to him, isn't there, there must be someone else, <laughs> someone more knowledgeable than I am, certainly someone more appropriate. I, you know, why me? He 
just said, no, we want to send you. So I flew from the U.S. to Nairobi, Kenya, from Columbia, South Carolina, and then up to the border of Kenya and Sudan to a little village called Lokochokyo. Now, in the village of Lokochokyo, that's where all of the NGOs were headquartered, the United Nations, all of the relief efforts that were ongoing to provide desperately needed food and supplies to the people caught in this civil war. And we had to get permission in order to go in, permission from the UN, permission from the church. They wouldn't send us in until they deemed it relatively safe to go. And so a couple of days later, I find myself in this really small airplane, four seats in this airplane. The pilot, a representative of the Sudan church, a man from the Reformed Church of Holland, and me. And we landed on a hardened dirt runway in the little village of Akobo, Sudan, which is near the Ethiopian border. It, mind you, it, it was in the middle of this war, and this town had been totally devastated. It was without electricity of any kind. The hospital that U.S. Presbyterians had built for them back in the 1940s, I think, was flattened. There, it was no longer there. It was a place of post-traumatic stress. That's the only, I mean, it was devastated. The people of this village at one point had fled into Ethiopia, fled the war, running for their lives. They spent a year as refugees in Ethiopia, then they trudged back. And I was aware of all of this when I landed. And I was wondering, really wondering at that point, what in the world I was doing here. Would it not have been better just to send the money that this was costing? And, and what was I going to say? What was I going to do? It was overwhelming. And quite frankly, I was a nervous wreck. And I didn't know what I was going to find. What I, I didn't know what state of being these people would be in after all they had endured. Would I be greeted with icy cold stares? Would I be greeted with fear? Would I be greeted with begging? Would I be greeted with demands? Would I, I, and when we emerged from the airplane, there was this large group of people singing and dancing. I kid you not, singing and dancing and ready to lead us into the village. We were, we were greeted with joy and with welcome. And we were immediately ushered into their church, which was a fairly large building of mud walls, thatched roof, dirt floor. And after much singing, and then we did words of greeting, everyone started in singing again. And some of them came forward with pails of water and sponges, and they took off our shoes, they took off our socks, they rolled up our pant legs, and they proceeded to wash our feet. 
a gesture of hospitality and of welcome. A certain kind of wisdom, I would say, that was born out of struggle and unimaginable hardship and faith. Ah, it was humbling, to say the least. But I learned a lot on that day. I saw a people who chose to walk in this darkness with light. Hope and not despair. I learned, I learned that just as with Joseph and Mary and those astrologers from the East, that wisdom often comes, most often probably, with very few words, but instead with humble gesture and heartfelt gesture. I learned like them to listen, to begin to listen to that small voice of wisdom and to know that I didn't always know. To begin to learn the wisdom of not knowing. And that instead, I would just have to simply receive welcome and hospitality and love. As they washed my feet, I could only allow the tears to come. Wisdom and light. Briefly, a final illustration. This is from a man who wrote a letter to the Washington Post in November 17th of last year. Name's Eric Dietrich Berryman, and this is what he wrote. I trudged Germany's highways in the autumn of 1945, headed for Berlin, ahead of the Soviets. We walked for weeks. My mother said it was three months. Food was unavailable. We gleaned fields. Drinking water was scarce. Men with guns stopped us. Barbed wire, go back, stay where you are, go here, go there, wait. A U.S. sentry post de-loused us with the blasts of white powder, and the kid that I was, I howled. We slept in bombed-out buildings. We slept in pine straw on for in forests. There were thousands of us, all ages, in any sort of weather. But no one has ever wanted to come to America more than I and find me at the age of 17. Unaccompanied, I succeeded. Sixty years of living here hasn't erased the white-hot need that drove me. So that caravan dragging itself to our southern border should be given refuge and medical support, food, and clean beds. 
Undesirables can be sorted on site. Identifying bad, bad actors was a job I had once as a US Army military policeman and interpreter in Berlin in 1959-1960. Doesn't take rocket science. Create a sieve that won't let them scatter and sort them out one at a time. Ellis Island made it work then, so can we now. They are me, 73 years ago. Starvelings infested with lice. Let them in with a smile and with open arms. Wash their feet. Wash their faces. Eric Dietrich Berryman. Wisdom and light. You never know where you're going to find it. Most likely in unlikely places. And like those astrologers of old, like those people in the village of Okobo in Sudan, we would do well to listen and to be alert. You know, epiphany can be right there in front of us. Amen.